Um, I'm, thank you, first of all, for joining us this morning. I'm Karen Tumulty. I cover politics for the Washington Post, but as anyone who knows me will tell you, one of the things I'm very proudest of is that I'm a native Texan. So, uh, and we're here today to, with a really great group of people to talk about the White House and the media, because I think a lot of people are pretty confused about that these days, especially people who are at the White House and in the media. So we've got uh, three real professionals here who have seen this, these questions from just about every angle. Sitting next to me is Kevin Madden, a presidential campaign veteran going back to, um, back to the Bush-Cheney campaigns, and he was also the chief spokesman for Mitt Romney. Uh, along the way, he also worked for Tom DeLay and Alberto Gonzalez, and John Boehner, the Speaker of the House. So he's, he's seen a few rodeos. And <laughs> next, next to him is Jennifer Palmieri, who you probably know most recently from her role as the Communications Director for the Hillary Clinton campaign. Before that, she was Communications Director in the Obama White House. And before that, well, we can keep going, but uh, my very favorite piece of trivia from Paul Mary's biography is the fact that it was at a office birthday party oh for her during the it's government. Like not even nine in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> during the government shutdown, that Bill Clinton met Monica Lewinsky. So you can talk to her about that afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> and things you wish you could have done to her. Like. <laughs> what if? And Josh Ernest, who I'm sure. Your birthday parties in the Obama White House were not nearly as eventful. They were not nearly as eventful. And um, then all the way over on the end, we have Josh Ernest, White House press secretary for Barack Obama, or the last representative of the pre Spicer era. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about hitting a zenith, huh? <laughs> So um, I'm going to start with a question that is, is very basic, but really fundamental, which is, who does the press secretary work for? Does the press secretary work for the president who hired him or her, or does, does he work for the American people who are paying the salary, or the media people that he has to deal with every day? Yeah. Well, I'll, I guess I'll start. Um, the, well, the, look, the simple answer is it's both, and it shouldn't be mutually exclusive. And we've got a way, we've got, we've got it built into our system to try to solve this, which is that obviously the, the president is the person that has hired you for the job. The reason that you were standing behind that podium is, the pres is because the president of the United States has said, I want you to stand behind that podium. On the other hand, you've also, when you started to work at the White House, you've sworn an oath as a public servant to defend the Constitution. It's basically the same oath that the President of the United States takes. And so by taking, by both of you taking that same oath, it should circumvent any sort of complications related to basic questions like, are you gonna lie to protect me? <laughs> uh, that really shouldn't be a question. And look, I, I remember vividly, for obvious reasons, I remember vividly when President Obama offered me the job to be his press secretary. And, um, he, one of the interesting things about every White House story is it always intersects with real life some way. My wife and I had just moved into a, uh, a, a new house and we were having trouble with the air conditioning. It was like late May. And so she was dealing with the air conditioning repair guy. And uh, the president's assistant came into my office 
and said, Josh, the, the president needs to see you. So I went into the Oval Office and spent 30 minutes or so with the, the President of the United States talking to him about the job as press secretary. When I got back to my office, I had like six missed calls from my wife. Uh, and I picked up the phone and called her back and said, I'm really sorry that I missed your calls. I know you were with the AC guy. But I have the <laughs> best possible explanation for why I didn't, didn't get your calls. But when I was in the Oval Office with the President of the United States, there were two things that he said. He said, when he was describing how he wanted me to handle responsibilities as press secretary, he said, the first thing you should know is, I'm not going to watch your briefing. Uh, in part, that was because he was pretty obviously too busy with much more important things to do than to watch television, particularly to watch somebody who worked for him be on television. Um, but the second thing that he said is he said, if there's ever anything you need to know before you walk into that briefing room, come and ask me. Come and ask me. Tell my assistant you need time on my schedule, and I will make time to see you before you walk out there. Because I want to make sure that what you're saying about what I think is accurate. And uh, that, was an, that was an important thing both for my uh, effectiveness in terms of being able to make a persuasive case on behalf of the president. It also did a lot for my credibility, that I was always in a position where the president was looking out to make sure that the person who was speaking for him could faithfully speak and faithfully represent what he was thinking. The point of this is, at no time in that conversation did the president ever have to say, oh, and by the way, make sure you tell the truth and don't ever feel like you have to lie to protect me. That was a given. That was a given. He already understood that he'd sworn an oath to, the, to defend the Constitution. He had a responsibility to the American public, to be honest. And he expected all of us, not just his, his press secretary, but everybody who was speaking on behalf of him, in public or in private, to adhere to that same standard. So it is easy to see how, um, hypothetically, those responsibilities could come into conflict, you know, protecting the interests of the American public and protecting the interests of the president. But if you're doing the job right, it shouldn't. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and the time that I was there, it didn't. Mm -hmm. So Jen, like, but when you're in a situation that you've been in and that we are now in, um, when you've got an active investigation going on yeah. outside, when you've got um, you know, a prosecutor who the president sees as being in an adversarial position. Where does this leave the staff? And where does this leave specifically the people who are in charge of communications in terms of what you need to know and what you need to say? Yeah, it's the worst sort of, it's the worst possible situation for somebody in communications because it's extraordinarily high risk and zero control. Um, and I think people don't appreciate how little you actually know when you're in the White House. Um, you know, I worked for, so as, as Karen helpfully pointed out, <laughs> <laughs> I got to have a couple of seats on the, the Ken Starr bus, uh, which I know he's here today, um, <laughs> because I was a witness at the grand jury um, because, uh, uh, because Monica had been my intern. Um, but also I worked in the press office during impeachment. Um, and nobody tells you you're under, that the White House is under investigation. Nobody tells you who the witnesses are. No one tells you um, what they, uh, if there's somebody's a subject or a target of what they're likely looking at. You operate in a uh, black box, and the only the, your sources are lawyers from people who get contacted to be witnesses and the press. I mean, we would learn much more from the press than anybody else about what was ever happening within the investigation. So you are, for the press secretary, um, uh, it, the, 
you, you develop a situation where you have to um, uh, make sure that the people who are going out um, to, to face the public have are able to represent not um, a, what's more likely to be important to know is what you don't know than what <laughs> than um, uh, than what you can say out loud because there's so you can't and it's very frustrating because. Uh, you don't know a lot. You can't speak in absolutes because that always comes back to hurt you. When you know, and you see that happening a lot in the Trump campaign or in the Trump White House, um, and that's frustrating for somebody like Josh. Uh, but uh, to live through, and it's very unsatisfying for the press. Um, but you can't. Uh, if you do that, you're going to get into trouble down the road. Um, and then there's uh, the fact that just the human toll it takes inside the building. You know, people. During um, Clinton, for a while, if you talked to Bill Clinton, you got a subpoena the next day. I mean, it was, it was and people were scared to talk to the president because they were scared that they were going to get uh, subpoenaed. And, and do you sense that fear in this White I House? Sense, yeah, and, it's, and, and it does feel like that's, particularly right now when, you know, Mueller, you know, when we've just had a window to see more of the how expansive his, uh, uh, his, uh, inquiry really is. And that's a hard, um, but people are worried about their own legal liability um, and it becomes a very scary dysfunctional place. And if you don't have a strong chief of staff um, at the helm and a president who's focused on the job that the president is supposed to be doing, it can really unravel. So Kevin, I mean, Josh described sort of ideally how things should work between the responsibilities of the communication staff. In real life, um, you've been in some of these high-pressure situations as well. In the, your fellow communications professionals, do they always sort of abide by that standards? And are they, when it's most important, willing to go to the boss and to give the boss the bad news? Well, um, I think that's a question of, of where do political professionals and communications professionals go right and go wrong. And I think you're right, Josh um, laid out, I think, the most important um, ingredients that you have to have in order to do the job well. And in order to manage uh, that balance between working for the principal and working for the American people. Because I believe that first and foremost, you have a responsibility to the President of the United States uh, or, the, or the candidate that you work for. Um, but what you usually have ideally, and that's why when I always tell young professionals when they're, when they're looking to take a job, like make sure that you believe in this person and that, that you are all in uh, with this person and that they're, the, they're somebody that in the moment's notice that you're willing to be able to go out there and advocate for without hesitation. Because if you can't, you're gonna be the one whose reputation is tarnished or tarred um, if you don't believe in that person. If it's only a transactional relationship, uh, and not one that you believe is uh, built on mutual trust and a mutual understanding, uh, then you're, 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 gonna be able, you're not gonna be able to do your job as well. Good advice. Yeah, it's, and, and increasingly I'm worried that not many people are taking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, but you do have to recognize that, you know, and I think Josh and, and Jennifer would agree that you are a broker of information and that you have to be truthful because ultimately that is going to serve the best interests of the president or the principal that you're working for. And does the president or the principal always want to hear that? They, they don't, but that's where your job gets really tough, and that's why, I mean, anybody uh, can, 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 can sit in a phone bank on a campaign and make phone calls or knock on doors. 
but it takes a really, uh, I think it's a hard job to be that person who essentially is the buffer between uh, truth and reputation and sometimes whether or not a White House manages itself successfully through a crisis or fails. Um, because that person has to sort of stare the boat right into the, uh, into the nose of the boat, right into the wind. So to your question about uh, whether or not professionals do it, no, sometimes they do not. And I think what they oftentimes get is a short-sighted sense of surviving the moment without taking a holistic approach about the institution that they're working in, which is, I think, public, you know, the, the, the public policy or, or the White House, or for me, it was the Department of Justice, or for me, it was the campaign, and essentially, like, the Romney, DeLay, Boehner um, professional reputation. I felt like I was a steward of that. And oftentimes, where you come into conflict with other professionals is when they don't take that very seriously. And their only, in, their only instinct is to do battle with the press and serve, um, and, and serve that audience of one. Uh, and I think if you don't have a, more, um, a, a better understanding of that, the fact that, there is a, that credibility is everything and that people have long memories, um, you will have a hard time um, being successful as a political professional, as a communications professional. I would say, Karen, like, about, um, I think uh, both what both these guys sort of hinted at something that I don't think is would be evident if you don't work in the business. One of the most important things to do, and, the, and, and is an uncomfortable, is to know, um, is to be willing to wait out to get answers and live in that uncomfortable period of time where you can't be definitive and absolute because it's gonna cause you problems on the back end. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes, you know, we had a joke, and the Obama White House was great to work in for many reasons, but particularly because our colleagues um, were very uh, understood that what the press did was largely out of our control, and it had certain dynamics, and we couldn't control it. So they would laugh like when a newspaper story would be bad. They'd be like, "Wow, Palmieri, that seems like that's a big communications problem." It's like, no, it's just a problem. Like, you know, the fact that the website healthcare.gov didn't work was just a problem. It wasn't a press problem. It was covered by the press, but it wasn't a press problem. But you um, have to under that just because the situation is uncomfortable. And there is, and your press is bad. It doesn't mean that reacting to it in the moment is the right thing to do, or or even if you have an answer and the answer isn't well received and the coverage of the answer is bad, it doesn't mean that that's still not the best answer. I would joke with my colleagues on the Clinton campaign, just because they made fun of how we handled that on Saturday Night Live doesn't mean it wasn't the best option we have. Right. It's never, you know, we have a, like, we usually have a lot of bad choices. So when you're like, why are they handling it that way? They should do X, Y, or Z. There's usually a pretty good reason, and you just got to have a lot of fortitude to get through the uncomfortable but, times. Well, and, and in some ways, I think this highlights one of the, there are so many stark differences between the way that uh, Barack Obama handled his responsibilities as president and the strategy that Donald Trump has employed as president. There's a strategy? But, well, to the extent that there... <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were supposed to play the straight man here. <laughs> but, the, but, but it is this idea that, that both uh, Jen and Kevin are talking about, which is Donald Trump is obsessed with what is going to be reported the next day. He is obsessed with what cable television is going to say about what he did in office that night or what the newspapers are gonna say the next morning, or what Fox and Friends is gonna report the next morning. Barack Obama could not have been more different than that. He recognized that it was well worth short-term pain to enjoy a long-term benefit. Uh, and it doesn't mean that he enjoyed the short-term pain of the healthcare.gov website <laughs> not working well, not working yeah. well or 
of the um, uh, unaccompanied minors streaming over the border, uh, or ISIL, uh, ISIL sort of running rampant in Iraq and in Syria, or Ebola, Ebola. spreading throughout <laughs> um, Africa and having healthcare workers coming back to the United States. These were all problems uh, that were significant. And in the short term, our solution to them was not focused on improving the next day's headlines, but in actually solving the problem over the long term. And it was a source of frustration in our White House that we would uh, 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 experience the downside of that, of these punishing daily headlines. But then once we finally, for example, uh, have stopped definitively the spread of Ebola, and nobody really notices. But, so, but you talked about how you can't really control what the media narrative is going to be. You've just got to yeah. sort of change the reality. But in this White House, they also can't control the principle. And you, Donald Trump has ways of reaching the American people. And I've got to say, I think that the Obama White House and Barack Obama pioneered this in a lot of ways. You know, there were, when I started covering politics, if you were the beat reporter on the White House, you could count on, you know, pretty regular sit-down interviews with the president. You guys were all over Between Two Ferns and The View and um, social media. But now you have this combination of the channels of communications changing and a principal who is perfectly willing to contradict what his staff is saying, to contradict even what he said yesterday. How would you handle that? Well, just real quick on that. I think that's one of the um, interesting things about this particular White House. And I guess I should do a lot of air quotes, interesting. Um, but <laughs> the, you know, so many reporters were calling me uh, in the last few months going, who, who, have you heard anything about who's going to be the new White House communications director? Have you heard anything about Spicer? Or, you know, a lot of people are saying so-and-so might be coming in to replace them. And that th who, do you think would, who do you think they're talking to about maybe taking over the podium or taking over the White House communications director job? And I said, does it even matter? Because the White House communications director and the spokesman for this White House is Donald Trump. And he is the one who has the information. He is the one who is deciding what the message is. And he is the one who's executed on a day-to-day, hour-by-hour basis. Uh, and that is very different from traditional White Houses. And that's why I think that the, 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 if we had a representative here who had you know, the job that Josh and, and had the job that Jennifer had here, um, there would be more questions than there would be answers because so many times they have gone out and said something uh, and made an indication like, no, there's been no deal with Schumer, Pelosi. 20 seconds later, there's a tweet saying, great deal with Schumer and Pelosi, <laughs> onward and upward. You know? And so um, I think that's the thing, is the unique, uh, the, the unique um, uh, you know, uh, what makes this White House unique is that the president is the spokesperson. And so much of the other um, uh, usual channels that a White House uses to communicate, like the briefing or you know, the, the regular communications planning for a, a policy rollout, um, they're ineffective, and they've been, over, they've been sort of canceled out. The, the White House briefing uh, in this White House is akin to watching, you know, well, I, I would say more so with Spicer, was akin to watching, um, a, you know, a, 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 a car chase on television, right? Which is, we're tuning in because we want to see either a crash or a shootout. And once that was no longer the case, we sort of, right, it became not must-see TV. And Sarah, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has now made it a little bit more of a routine. Um, but she's still being undermined on a day-to-day -day basis because the press secretary, the real press secretary, or the real communications director in his White House is the president. Yeah. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that some of the uh, 
well, to the extent that there have been low points, at some of the low points, you know, some of the news coverage that you, you see of the White House is the uh, President Trump's friends talking to reporters anonymously about how intensely frustrated President Trump is with his staff. He feels like they're ineffectual. He feels like he's the only one who can cut through. He's the only one who can deliver a, a message. And it's his fault. I can understand why he'd be frustrated, because he has created a situation where there is no one else who can speak on behalf, authoritatively, on behalf of his administration. He hasn't taken the time to invest, not just in spokespeople, but even in cabinet secretaries, uh, who are undermined publicly left and right. And it does create a situation where he is the only person, using his Twitter feed and his public rants, who can drive a message about what his White House is doing, no one else can do it because they're regularly undermined. And so I have no doubt that that would be a really frustrating <laughs> thing. Uh, but you know, it, it, it required President Obama, and I'm sure this was true of President Bush and, and President Clinton as well, that they had to invest in the people who were speaking on behalf of them. They have, to take, they have to make time on their schedule, like I was describing. I'm sure there were times where the president was busy with much more important things than to have me interrupt him for five minutes with whatever annoying question I wanted to ask and him about what I was going to be asked about in the briefing. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but he understood that it was worth taking that time because he was investing in my credibility so that he didn't have to constantly be going out there to talk to them because he had more important things to do. Uh, yeah, and it's, uh, it's interesting because, like, and I know in our situation at The Post, we have had reporters who will go over to the White House to think they're talking to some White House official and then all of a sudden uh, Hope Hicks or the, will come in and say, oh, why don't you just come into the Oval and talk to the president about it? I mean, yeah. Donald Trump has been extraordinarily available on a sort of almost impulsive yeah. basis to reporters. That must... I found that what I have found surprising about the Trump White House is how conventional, you know, how conventional the uh, press uh, outreach actually is. Yeah. Um, so I figured that, I mean, Trump, okay, so Trump uses Twitter, but the reason why that has such a big impact isn't because of the medium, it's because he says outrageous things. So, but beyond that, in terms of, in terms of communications, he talks to a lot of White House reporters, he's very focused on them. They, uh, I figured they would be, I figured they would go and do all sorts of, you know, soft uh, TV shows and late night TV shows and things to reach people outside of the political press. and. They have uh, really doubled down on, weirdly, even though the, the relationship is so terrible with the White House press corps, about how, like, I think we thought about the White House press corps uh, versus other outlets um, in the Obama White House. I think it's very important that there, uh, uh, that the White House press corps exists, that the same reporters are coming in day to day and they are asking questions of one person who is accountable to them. And I think it's important that it's the same person every day um, uh, uh, so that there is a, there is an ongoing record of the uh, decisions that the president is making and the policies they're trying to advance and that they're being held accountable at every moment. The problem, I think, there's two problems. So one is that that you, if you only talk to the White House press corps, you are not reaching America and you are not doing your job. And I thought my job as a communications director is the President of the United States has a very big responsibility to communicate with the American people to explain like what's happening in the world and also what he's trying to do to solve problems. That is a responsibility of his. And if you only talk to the White House press corps, you're, you're not reaching a lot of people. So that is why we would use different forums for the... Um, uh, for President Obama. Um, and the other problem is 
outlets will sometimes cover the administration as just being the White House. So, you know, so it's like if you, the problem is if we at the Obama White House, if we only focus on the White House press corps, you wouldn't have gotten coverage on a lot of important issues that people care about because the White House press corps ends up being a lot of process and accountability questions which are important and I think uh, you need to maintain that relationship and I'm very supportive of, uh, of uh, you know, of keeping that, uh, that daily interaction. Um, even on camera, even with all the drama it creates, but outlets sh should do a lot more to cover much more of the administration. So how do you think the press is doing in all this wild west of an environment that we're in? Oh, wow. Um, where do I start with that one? Um, well, look, I think one of the lessons of the campaign is that there's a very big difference between broadcasting and journalism. Uh, and I think during the campaign, there was a tendency to just flip the cameras on and allow this free programming to just go directly to the American public. And a lot of it was not, uh, you know, the journalistic filter wasn't really applied as much. So that's why we had so many controversies about what, what Trump was saying or what other candidates uh, during the campaign were saying, which is not true or wasn't being fact-checked adequately. Um, but I think um, one, of the, one of the things that the, the, the I think the press has felt like they have a new, embolden they're, they're newly emboldened with a mission of, of, of pure journalism, which is accountability, which is holding the, the, the White House accountable on a regular basis. And I think that has produced some very good journalism as a result. Um, one of the things that I would worry about, though, and you do see this, and I won't name names, but I think many, many journalists are feeding a lot of, of Republican uh, angst or uh, center, I guess I should say center-right angst about media bias, because they believe that that a lot of reporters feel that it's their job to be um, the counterpoint to the administration, and they're essentially taking on an advocacy role in that uh, in, uh, as a result, and that it once again reinforces so what so many center-right audiences believe is this inherent um, bias against Republican uh, candidates in a way that they would have never have done that with. Um, or, or had the same, same zeal for accountability with a previous Democratic administration. There is a way, though, for center-right politicians to call their bluff. Center-right politicians who stand up to Donald Trump get better press than anybody. That's <laughs> true. But so few of them have the courage and the, and, the, and, the, and the courage of their convictions to do that. If more of them did that, a lot more of them would get much better coverage from the mainstream press. They would get press. amazing press, yeah, mm -hmm. it's true. So one more question before we open it up to your questions. Um, where is all this taking us? Have we, have we <laughs> crossed some kind of point of no return in this relationship between the White House and the media? Is, is anything going to return to anything that seems recognizable? Um, I'll start, if that's all right. Yeah. I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I think that there is, beyond the, beyond the press in the White House, I think there's like a 36 7% chance that America's best days are behind us and a 63% chance that they are not. Um, so I focus on the 63. You got to expect to win, right, if you're in a campaign. And, I, and, and this is a campaign for the survival of America. And um, I expect that we, will, that we will win. And I think that uh, all of our institutions are being tested. I mean, Trump, to me, I think Trump is, disruption has now come to my 
um, industry, right, um, if you will, that uh, he didn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, there was a lot of extraordinary change that has happened in the world. Um, that, um, uh, and this is a reckoning. Uh, his, this is presidency, and what the campaign felt like was sort of a reckoning of all of these frustrations uh, that have pent up. And I think so. Uh, we have a situation where we have a disruptor in the White House who is challenging all the rules of the democracy, um, literally the Constitution, as well as sort of norms. And the question is, how are institutions like the press and citizens react, gonna react to it? I've just been um, impressed that with how the media has not been, I mean, it's hard to balance, a, you know, to your point, um, but not be concerned about being so aggressive on him and, um, and noting what's not normal. Um, uh, I, I was concerned that they would, uh, that they would not do that. But you see that citizens are rising to the occasion and the press is as well. And yes, he quote, gets away with it because he continues to say these things, but uh, if the way the, uh, I think truth is going to work out, win out in the end. I think people will have to, it's, it's hard for citizens, you've got to seek out the truth because there's so much out there that's uh, fake news or, or that the president says it's not true. And it's a challenging time, but I, the, every, reaction has a, every reaction has a reaction. So I suspect the reaction in the, for the next White House is going to be a calm, experienced, assured president with a communications apparatus that, res that respects the role of the, uh, of the press and has some newly found boundaries. Yeah, I think the, the main thing that I, I, I think uh, that I've observed is that the, the shift away from the media having a bit more power has, is, is, I don't think we're ever going back in the sense that we, we used to, when, we, when I first started working on campaigns, it was, man, how do we work hard? How do we build relationships in order to get a piece of the platform of a Wall Street Journal editorial or a Washington Post editorial? Or how do we get our, our bosses uh, or our candidate or the, or the president on one of the Sunday shows in order to drive news? And I think what's happened now is that the paradigm has shifted so that campaigns, White Houses, um, just politics overall, Communication shops now have uh, have the have a have an ability to level the playing field, and essentially, um, they get to serve as the programmer. Uh, they get to serve as the sort of managing director of their own news cycle. So, like, they can put something up on a website. They can have the the, the principal tweet something out. They can produce content in a way where they don't need the media, so they can go through and essentially produce their own news. And that's where you have this rise of. Uh, of people saying, well, this is fake news and this is not, or self-segmentation where people only believe the news or the, or, the, or, the, or the arguments that they're getting from their preferred political party or their preferred platform. And I think that has, has we're never going back in that And sense. I think that's the yeah. most unhealthy trend of all. And, it, and it's very difficult. Now, I think this White House has, mm. when they first came in, they reorganized it in a way that I thought was smart, that was reflective of that, that change and that trend. Uh, I think taking news are taking uh, pre press briefing questions from folks outside around the country was uh, you know, a novel idea. I think the same way that uh, the, the Obama White House went from not doing a radio uh, interview every single day, uh, or, or doing the weekly radio address to, the, uh, to a weekly video address, and the same way that the 1600 um, blog that they ran constantly produced, I think, uh, a more methodical flow of their arguments to the American people directly. Um, and that I think is going to that that I think is going to continue, uh, and I think the press is going to have to struggle with that because the 
the tribalism that I think has affected parties in potentially a negative way and the populace in a, a, a potential way is now going to affect the media, where people just do that self-segmentation, which is, is what? Uh, that news article, that news source? I don't believe them. I only believe this news source. And um, there will be less and there will be fewer sort of stewards that people see are neutral brokers of information, brokers of truth. I, I think the only thing I would, I would say to, to build on that, and I, I think Kevin makes a, a pretty compelling point, sort of this idea that in an earlier era, which wasn't that long ago, there was a lot of effort that was made to try and get a piece of the platform. Uh, and in exchange for that piece of the platform, what you were doing is you were subjecting yourself to being held accountable right. by those journalists. Now that you no longer need that piece of the platform, the question is, to what extent do you cooperate with people who want to hold you accountable and ask tough questions? So it, to, get on, to get on the front page of the Washington Post in a Karen Tumulty story, you had to go and sit down with Karen and absorb her tough questions. Now, when you're producing your own content, um, you have to make a decision, where does taking tough questions from the Washington Post factor into your strategy? And what you need, ultimately, I think, particularly in, in, in people who are in positions of power, is a willingness to buy into the role that journalists have in the success of our democracy. To say, you know what, there may not be something in it for me uh, to walk out there and do a news conference on this terrible topic, except that it's my job. <laughs> Except that this is the thing I'm supposed to do to ensure the success of the country. This is something that I owe the American people. I owe them to be held accountable, and so I have to go out here and take questions, even if it's pretty inconvenient. And this, was a, this may sound like a conversation that we had inside the White House uh, with some regularity in the Obama White House, and we did. That we did have an obligation to go out and, and, and engage with that press corps. And um, it, served, it, it served us well in part because there's one other thing that the media does that we haven't uh, talked about here, but I think is really important. And I came to appreciate this um, more the more that I did the job as press secretary, which is one of the benefits of having an in-house White House press corps is that the White House press corps isn't always just writing down what you're saying. They are constantly assessing what I describe as your body language. They're constantly evaluating. Is this an argument that they're eager to have, or is this an argument that they're shying away from? How right. confident are they in making this argument? Do they want this conflict? Do they think this is an argument politically that they can win? Uh, or is this something that they are trying to hide, or at least an argument that they're shying away from? And there's a lot of value in that. So there's a lot of value to walking out into that briefing room on the toughest days and saying, you know what? I'm just going to stay here for an hour and a half and take all your questions. Uh, and that had a way of showing up in the, uh, in the coverage, too. And I will say that that's one of the, uh, in terms of uh, rating the performance of, uh, uh, of President Trump's current advocates, is that's something that they don't do very mm. well. Uh, and I think that this was one of the challenges that Sean had in maintaining his relationship with the White House press corps, is that he was often appear, you know, there, were more, there was more than one occasion where he was filmed walking out of the briefing room while people were trying to shout questions at him. Right. Uh, you know, even in his famous sort of first appearance in the briefing room where he was uh, presenting a, uh, uh, an argument about the, uh, the crowd size at the uh, uh, inauguration that was um, difficult to defend, he didn't actually... <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be generous here. Not Saturday fine. morning. Um, but he also walked out of there without taking any questions. Right. It was a really bad look. And, um, you know, there, there were reports that reporters took to staking out his office. Uh, waiting for him to come out and give answers. It's your job to give answers to the press corps. Uh, and so I, I think that is one of the benefits I think that will be difficult to replace. Right. Uh, and um, even as our 
media environment changes, having people who are at the White House every single day who are constantly monitoring what the White House is doing, I think is really valuable uh, for our democracy. And if it's handled well, it, it can have a benefit for the, the occupant of that job. And, and it's valuable for our credibility, right? Because if you are putting out your own, if you are utilizing your own platforms, people aren't sure. Um, uh, it is helpful to have, it, you know, it is helpful in the long run to have what you are putting out on these platforms, uh, uh, you know, either validated or, you know, um, at least reviewed by the press so that then uh, people know uh, there's an echo chamber in, of saying, like, this is, this is, this is true, this is not. Um, but the press corps is going to have, the White House press corps, I would say to them during Obama, you guys are living on borrowed time, and you're going to have to have, you need a better reason for why you get daily access to the White House press secretary and other outlets don't, a better reason than this is the way it's always been. Um, and I think that it is important that there is that day-to-day -day interaction and accountability, but you know why you? Why is it these outlets that get that, and they need a better explanation either than we have a lot of viewers, because yeah. you know the White House, <laughs> The White House has got big platforms, so well, either it's where you know people should listen, the viewers should listen to us, and we should have this access because we're adding additional, and you know we're enlightening people more. We're right? able to add context. We are going behind the scenes to show what's actually happening, or uh, we're transparent. I mean, you are very transparent in how you do your own work. People get ask Karen a question on Twitter. Well, you know this story, why didn't you ask that question? I did ask that question, and this is the answer I got. I mean, and she, I think, you, I understand reporters want to protect their own objectivity, um, but uh, I think you could, reporters could be more credible by being more transparent about how they do their work. I mean, it's hard to know, what do I, this, you know, you opened up the story in the New York Times, and it's like, uh, you know, it, there, it's like, according to sources, X, Y, or Z, and you have no idea who they are, and. Um, it's hard to know what to believe, and so I think like how do you be more transparent in what you do so you have you guys have maintained credibility, and how do you explain the value of what you do so you continue to have that access? And I think that's like where the press corps needs to think for the next time, next president. And let the record show nobody on this stage has ever hidden the bushes. So, um, <laughs> now, how would you know? Maybe we're just, Maybe we're just better at Either it. Either that or they hid really well. <laughs> Um, so I bet there's some questions out here. Uh, would, there's a gentleman in the front row. Also, can somebody tell me how many more minutes we have? There's a clock right there. 20. Okay, great. This is a healthy amount of questions. So, oh, there's a clock. <laughs> uh, Josh, you talked about how the in the Obama White House the focus was on solving the problem, and which is great. I wish we were back there in the olden days, you know, yeah. nine months ago. Uh, I suspect you're not the only one. And my question here is, is on the branding as a communication professional, is that could the White, Obama White House and the Obama administration done a little bit more on the branding side, which is the focus of the Trump administration? Well, it's all brand. Um, because I had trouble with the Obama administration ticking off. Here's the great things. There were a lot of good things, I'm sure. Yeah. But... So I wonder if you've swung the pendulum so far to solve the problem in a little bit more branding. And can yeah. I say that same criticism could probably has been leveled at the Hillary Clinton campaign as well, I think, that yeah. it was the sum of its policy proposals. Yeah. Um, I, here's, what, here's what President Obama would tell you in answering that question. 
which is that we didn't have any trouble branding when he was running for the job. And he would sometimes, you know, at moments of, 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 of some frustration, uh, make that observation when we're on an airplane or in a car somewhere uh, after he'd read a bad story about himself. And there's one thing, there's one key difference. So you might say um, 750 million key differences, which is that when he was running for re-election, we ran 750 million, we had $750 million to go and drive his message around the country. We had an opportunity to hire organizers to go door to door to talk about what President Obama had achieved. There are millions of dollars in television ads that were running both on national cable and in targeted uh, battleground states. And when you're in government, you don't have that advantage. Uh, not only do you not have that advantage, when you're in government, for the things that are going wrong, people want to know why you're not fixing it. And so it is easy. Uh, so I'm trying to think of a good example of this. Um, you know, I mean, in some ways, the, the, the situation with ISIL is a, is a pretty good example uh, of this, because, in part because of what's happened over the last eight months. Uh, you'll recall, because uh, this illustrates both sort of the argument that I was making about President Obama not being focused on the next day's headlines, but actually trying to solve the problem over the long term, uh, and what that does to your branding. So you'll recall that in the midst of, uh, uh, of the uh, 2016 campaign, uh, Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and Chris Christie and frankly all of the competitors in the Republican primary were harshly critical of the way President Obama was handling uh, the fight against ISIL, the war on terror, uh, and the effort to protect uh, our homeland. And there were a lot of days where we took bad, you know, we got bad headlines in the newspaper uh, because President Obama was focused on a much longer-term strategy that involved sort of addressing the political situation in Iraq, uh, that addressed building a sort of an international coalition to make sure it wasn't the United States uh, that was fighting ISIL alone. Uh, President Obama did not want to uh, uh, order 120,000 US combat troops on the ground in Syria to go and try and solve the problem there. He recognized that our solution needed to be different than that. Um, and he also recognized that a lot of this was going to be a battle for the hearts and minds of the Muslim world, and we needed to enlist credible members of the Muslim community, leaders in the Muslim community around the world, to go and help us make the argument that the ideology that was espoused by ISIL was not a true, reflect, true reflection of Islam. Those are all strategies that are not going to be accomplished in a news cycle. Uh, it's going to take a long time. And my, my point here is this. Since President Trump has taken office, despite all of his two years worth of criticism about the weakness of our strategy and about how the generals didn't really know what was going on and how unwise it was to telegraph to ISIL what it is that we were doing, he hasn't really done anything different in the war on ISIL. And what have we seen? We've actually seen that ISIL's geographic footprint in Iraq and in Syria has been steadily shrunk. We have had success in continuing to expand and strengthen uh, our coalition. Uh, and the threat from ISIL persists, but we haven't had any attacks uh, on America that can be attributed to them. So my, my point is, and so you're basically, so in some ways I'm making your point, which is, if anything, Trump's getting credit for that, not Obama. Is that a failure of our branding strategy? Maybe it is, but it is a reflection of the president's, of President Obama's view that his responsibility was to go and solve the problem and not focus on what was the next day headline going to be, but over the long term, how is history going to judge me? And so uh, uh, let me end by saying this. Uh, I think President Obama was content to leave the branding to the historians. Yeah, and that when we look back 20 years from now, I think, 
the evaluation of the Obama presidency will be, frankly, better than it is now. Actually, I was just going to comment my, is that a complex, nuanced brand is kind of harder than you can't brand um, you can't brand results that people don't feel in their everyday lives. But actually, that I, is that I, is the fundamental I'd, problem. I'd argue that he was actually an incredible brander, and yeah. uh, and and let me just take a clinical viewpoint here, so I'm not endorsing uh, the success of the Obama administration or <laughs> or, or seen as successing or or my or my my we won't accuse my fellow of that. panelists, right? <laughs> so I'll just take a widen the lens here, but. When we ran against what I thought was an incredibly well-run campaign, a strong message operation, and a good branding. And, and it was one of the things that I th thought through the 2012 campaign, which is if you looked at the way that the president conducted himself in debates, if you looked at the mail that they were sending, the commercials that they were running, there were three distinct messages that were threaded throughout everything that they did in 2012. We need an economy that's built to last. We need an economy that's built for the, from the middle out. And, and, and who's on your side? And I thought it was incredible how they did that. And then you, ultimately, if you look at the president's main, what he would argue is his main accomplishment, Obamacare. Like, it's the greatest branding ever. It's named Obamacare, right? <laughs> now, when you get involved in the politics of healthcare, which is extremely divisive and worldviews start to clash, it will be seen as negative or positive by, depending on the audience. But it is called Obamacare. We're having a debate about Obamacare. So I would argue that there was, there was some, some uh, strong branding instincts there. Um, but, but just remember that the divisiveness of politics just in general in this, in this environment will, will invite critics. Well, my favorite, my favorite example, though, of the branding genius of Donald J. Trump is that, as, as you might recall, the political environment in the few days after the 2012 election, the Republican Party's going through this identity crisis. They're trying to figure out, you know, how can we, you know, take the edge off our edges? How can we be nicer to Hispanics? How can we expand our, our reach to women? Six days after Mitt Romney went down to defeat in 2012, and you can check this in the website of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, an American citizen named Donald J. Trump made a $325 payment to the Patent and Trademark Office to trademark the phrase, Make America Great Again. He, he, you look and the logo is there, the block letters are there. I actually interviewed Trump about this and he really sat there. He said the day after the election, he said, I knew I was gonna run and I went through this slogan and rejected it and that slogan. I mean, he was branding, and again, it was the exact opposite strategy, I think, that the entire rest of the Republican Party, but he, there was something out there that he saw even Absolutely, six yeah. days after the, that election. The other thing, too, is I had a friend of mine one time um, make an important point that I've tried to uh, imprint upon politics. And he said, he goes, he's like, I went to uh, a concert with my uh, daughter, Taylor Swift concert. He goes, man, it's like a religious experience. <laughs> and, he's, and I was like, why? He's like, he's like you got like 60,000 like 13-year-old girls screaming. And why? Because you look at the way Taylor Swift talks to her audience. She talks to an audience of 60,000 uh, people as if she's talking to each and every one of them and speaking to something that they f feel in her music, which is when she thanks everybody for being there, she's like, I want to thank you for being here with me tonight and to hear our songs together, and you and I have been through a lot. And so you have 60,000 13-year-old girls going, oh my god, Taylor Swift knows. <laughs> she does. Right, she, she does, does. Know. she knows. <laughs> and, and so like, you, tr you, and you remember now, like, that was one of the struggles I had in the Romney campaign, which is that, 
we offered a very clinical assessment about what Americans want to hear and, and believe in America and uh, Americans in the economy. And it was a lot like, uh, you know, like your favorite uh, uh, economist uh, class. And so I think that was where we suffered, which is that people didn't feel like we were talking directly to them about their anxieties or directly to them about um, some of what the, some of the pain that they were feeling, or some of the, the you know what they wanted to hear as far as hopes, dreams, and aspirations for the future. And, and politics and presidential campaigns are always, always at their core contests for the future. And I think that was what Donald Trump tapped into with this brand "Make America Great Again," which is this idea that somehow America had, which was always ascending, had somehow stopped. And that a lot of people, these people were being left behind. And they were being left behind by a Washington elite or an establishment that had lost its way and no longer prioritized the, the anxieties of, of these voters. Now, one thing I would just, one, one last point I would make is that let's not confuse successful immediate branding with long-term success. Because I remember in 2008 campaign where huge rallies uh, around the country were chanting, um, things like drill, baby, drill, drill, baby, drill, right? It's a great brand, essentially, if when you have 40,000 people cha chanting it or 20,000 people at a, at a McCain event chanting it. But what you found was a slogan, and what you didn't have was a policy behind it. Right. And so that oh, like is where, right, just right. Like, you know. That is where I think where you have this box that maybe Trump is very good at sort of selling Rocket Man, or he's really good at, right, or selling. And, but what is the, what's, the, what's the overarching policy that's being driven behind it? We know that you have uh, cri criticism of North Korea and its leader. What's the policy that's going to make us safe? Can you brand that? That, I think, is a challenge yeah. for this White House. Can, can I say one thing about yeah. um, uh, the Hillary campaign? So Hillary has said her biggest regret is that it's not being able to speak to this anger. Um, and I would say that we felt that, I mean, every day on the campaign trail, I saw something that told me Donald Trump could be president. I mean, every day. Like, you saw something that you thought, you, we understood in the fall of 2015 this was not a normal election. What we found, though, was the people who were that angry, and we went to Appalachia with Hillary, um, uh, because she's great in those situations, and talking to people, hearing them out, she wants to understand what the problem is, she wants to fix it. And uh, to, you know, parts of Pennsylvania, some of the you know Western Pennsylvania, and places that are really not doing well. And it's like, man, they cannot hear you. It is way too late. Like they, it was just way too late for the 2020 or the 2016 presidential candidate to be heard, and particularly, you know, because and this is like needs to be the subject of another conference, let alone a panel, because of. Um, the because of how people, the prisms through which people view Hillary Clinton um, in particular, it was, we were like, there, she cannot be heard, period, full stop. So uh, then we're gonna go, that is why we're saying, okay, making America great again versus stronger together. And um, people have uh, made fun of stronger together as being too simplistic and like, make America great again isn't. But I think it, it was the core of the difference. That is who she is. She thinks that she wants to bring people together. She, she thinks that she doesn't have all the answers. She wants to figure out what the problems are and solve them and she wants us to do that together and the country is stronger when we do that way. And three million more people voted for that. The difference that we had from 2016 to when I did 2012, paid media, television advertising mattered not at all. Like, there's a lot of people, a lot of my friends make a lot of money <laughs> on making political television commercials, so I'm sorry to tell them this. It just, you could not, all that mattered is what happened in what we call the earned media space. All that mattered is what happened in the news. 
And so you couldn't drive a message the way we could in 2012. And it was, um, and I, I, don't, I don't think we're going back to those days. Um, so it is going to be more of a cacophony uh, in the next, you know, even in uh, 2020 than I think it was in uh, 12, certainly. Great. Uh, I think we have time for uh, at least one more question. Yes, sir. Hello. Um, uh, my question um, really isn't directed towards anyone specific on the panel, but um, kind of what I wanted to ask was um, we spoke about Trump's uh, kind of unique uh, approach to public relations, if it can be termed as an approach. Um, and how he you know, utilizes you know, social media and has this kind of direct approach. Um, my question would be, um, is this direct approach because of the uniqueness of his administration or is it due to this new demand of the American public where they're no longer content turning on the evening news and seeing um, Josh Ernest um, you know, doing his press briefing? They want to see you know, a tweet from President Obama or President Trump. Uh, it's a good question. I think it's the supreme confidence of the, of the president in that he's the best messenger. Um, and from from both anecdotal information or you know conversations that I've had with people that have worked with him, they, 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 he is. I think people talk about him as the first CEO president, but I think in, 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 I think I see him less as a CEO as more as like somebody who believes he's the best salesman to ever walk the face of the earth. And so his supreme confidence in that he knows the right way to talk directly to the people in a way that addresses in a very distilled and a very condensed way their concerns, and so that it and, and so that and, it, and in a way that generates uh, all of the media attention, where he essentially just commands absolute control of the media. And that's one of the things is like politics used to be reduced to sort of, you know. Uh, uh, just um, just like a couple of pages in the newspaper, and now it's. Jimmy Kimmel and entertainment. It's uh, sports and it's like today he's tweeting about Stephen Curry. Last night he was talking about Colin Kaepernick. And then also the political world. So it's like he controls all three aspects of, of, of major news. And I would add in business as well. Most CEOs are terrified of getting tweeted at right now in a negative way by this president. So um, it's that. It's that supreme confidence that he's the best messenger and that he knows the way to coin a phrase and directly animate huge swaths of the American public. I mean, like fundamentally, any every person, any any one person on the planet can communicate with every person on the planet. It's a revolution the world has never seen, and you know that's and we have none of us, no one. I don't think anybody on the planet has wrapped their heads around what that actually means. It could mean an enormous unraveling of uh, society where colleges don't matter, you know, no credentials matter because what's a credential other than? the ability to be heard, right? It's like a doctor is able to be heard and their views matter because they have all these credentials. And if anyone on the planet can be heard by everyone on the planet through these platforms, um, uh, it, uh, it, you know, what, what you, we're gonna have to self-regulate. And I think Trump as, uh, uh, yeah, I think you're right. People wanna hear from him directly because they know that they know that they, they know that they can, but that larger question is what hangs over all of this. Yeah, and just think about the way, think about that power right now. No, imagine if you had that power, which is to pull out your iPhone right now in this auditorium, tweet something, and have every single major news organization in the world stop and turn its attention on that and begin an entire new cycle of coverage on it, an entire new cycle of coverage. I mean, it's, it's an incredible power, and I think he recognizes that. Now imagine you have the world's biggest and most fragile ego. <laughs>
Well, I, I do want to thank our wonderful panel today. <laughs> On that note, is there, is there, is there a drum and cymbal? <laughs> Is there a mic that we can draw? <laughs> uh, um, anyway, I do want to thank you guys. And I also want to thank all of you for uh, choosing to spend yeah. part of your morning with us. And boy, we have a great day ahead of all of us today. So thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you.